Well, I think you can uh, perceive the uh, same things that I'm perceiving, but uh, this morning just feels different, doesn't it? Just feels different. Something about the fellowship and, I don't know, the phoniness of fist bumps as opposed to handshakes. I'm just a handshake guy. If I fist bumped you this morning, I'd apologize. <laughs> that's just not, that's not normal for me, but just the songs and the thoughts and where our hearts are at as we reflect on what's happening around us. Yeah, they can put us into a state of, of, of fear, shock, panic. That's uh, certainly not what we want to be. Uh, there's, there's one who we have to fear, and we're going to go find him this morning. He's in the text. Green Bible Church, grab your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, and as you're doing that, I want you to consider this with me. In 1980, America saw the deadliest and most destructive volcanic eruption in the recorded history of the continental United States. What volcano erupted in 1980? Oh, you guys are Washingtonians. Fantastic. My kind of people. 57 people died as a result of Mount St. Helens eruption. There was great public awareness efforts that went on to uh, instruct Washingtonians of this catastrophe. And there were many warning signs that accompanied this catastrophe as well. However, one of the victims, his name was Harry Truman. He became quite a celebrity before he died because Harry uh, had some reporters and TV crews over to his house. He was interviewed on his land, which was one mile from Mount St. Helens, and he was happily rejecting public warning. He was an open scoffer of the reports that seismic activity indicated great danger for where he was living. Harry was quoted as saying, if the mountain goes, I'm going with it. This area is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is between me and the mountain, and the mountain is a mile away. The mountain ain't going to hurt me. And God didn't uh, keep Harry in suspense for long. A pyroclastic flow engulfed Spirit Lake, destroying the lake and burying the site of Harry's lodge under 150 feet of volcanic debris. In his pride and scoffing, Harry didn't listen to the right voice. He didn't have the right fear, and he certainly didn't listen to reason. Washington State did well to record vital statistics about the mountain, and then to go further and to warn the public about the imminent threat to life presented by the seismic activity. They had data. They had legitimate physical threat to all local life, and they used their voice to communicate a public fear and successfully reason for evacuations which saved many lives. And as we're here today in this large 800-pound gorillas in the room, I would ask you, is the same thing happening today with the coronavirus? What voices should we listen to? What does the data show? What are we to fear? And what voices of reason should we be listening to? Today we're hearing, be concerned. The coronavirus is bad. You must change your ways. Lives are at risk and death might come and find you. Today's voices are reasoning with us, and they're saying, immediately stop large group gatherings. Stop shaking hands and positively stay at home. Self-quarantine. You've got to protect yourself and others, and people are listening to these voices. And many have responded even by going to the extreme of hoarding toilet paper. Is that you? Are you the reason why we couldn't get toilet paper this week? <laughs> All the shelves at Trader Joe's are just bare and empty. Was that you? No, raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Consider our country's rapid onset coronavirus dysphoria. 
Consider the great lengths that state governments and sporting associations are going to demonstrate solidarity, allegiance, and obedience to the voices of corona panic. You know, as a pastor and as a man of God, I'm jealous. I'm jealous of this because of God and and God's jealousy. The greatest pandemic that humanity faces is called sin. It's a radical threat to all human life, killing 150,000 people per day. Most of these people will burn in hell for eternity. And yet we have the cure for this as well. His name is Jesus Christ. Where is God's media coverage? Where is God's network-to-network hype? Where is the global concern for the billions of souls headed to eternal death this year for certain? Instead, we have much media and global hype over coronavirus, which at this point has killed 40 Americans. Perhaps by the end of the year, coronavirus will be more deadly than your toaster. Because in America, toasters kill 300 people every year. Where's the public outrage over toaster deaths? (laughs) Coronavirus is telling us a lot about our voices, the voices that we listen to, the voices that we fear, the things that we fear. And where we get reason from. Who are we reasoning with? What reasoning are we doing? What does this say about fear as a motivator? Isn't that interesting? Fear is a powerful motivator, is it not? But why not the fear of God's wrath? Why not the fear of God's wrath? Do you find this amazing? What an incredible social experiment. Find an agent for fear, broadcast it relentlessly, and see how the people will respond. And what do we find? Fear works, but does it end evil? Does it end sin? Does it stop the spread of evil? Which is a more existential threat to us, the coronavirus or sin? English Puritan John Flavel says of fear, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. By the fear of man, they run themselves into evil. Why are we so concerned with the spread of a virus, but not the spread of sin and eternal death? to our fellow humanity. How much of what we are seeing today is fear of man and not the fear of God? I saw this when I was in business for years. It's amazing when you sit and network with folks in business, how many people sell their products with fear? And, you know, just just to have fun with them in a networking group one morning, I went and I tried to, I made my best attempt to sell my printing company to them with fear, you know. You've got to have my printing or else you're going to (laughs) die. What does the Bible say to fear? Psalm 33.8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Jesus says in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Many voices are seeking your time and attention. They have fear to sell and all manner of reasoning, which demands then your obedience to it as well. This morning, we need to have a conversation about voices, about fear, and about reason. We need to turn to the Word of God and find out who should we hear, what should we fear, and with whom should we reason. You are in Isaiah chapter 1, and I've titled our message this morning, An Island of Divine Reason. An Island of Divine Reason. And my aim is no different than Isaiah's aim. When chaos abounds, and when catastrophe is at hand... The duty of the man of God is to be a clear voice of divine reason and to direct the focus of God's people to fear and obey him alone. My concern is for you. 
and, and not particularly whether or not you get the coronavirus. My concern is that you hear fear and reason with God today, that you hear fear and reason with God today. There are so many distracting voices in your life. You need to break from the voices and their fears and their reasonings. You need, like the Israelites, to have a man of God demand that you hear fear and reason with God. It was amidst mass chaos that Israel had a man sent from God named Isaiah, a powerful prophet. For you today, you're stuck with me. But it'd be good if I read to you Isaiah. And if I share with you the things that he told Judah about hearing and fearing and reasoning with God amidst mass chaos and catastrophe. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. And let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah writes around 700 B.C., before Christ, a time of great peril and chaos in Judah, the southern kingdom, after the divided kingdom. Spiritually, Judah has abandoned the Lord even from the time of Solomon. And after Solomon, 20 kings would reign in the south, and only eight of them would be God-honoring kings. And as a result, rampant idol worship was the order of the day. Even an empty and phony ritualism that God despised. You heard this when we just read, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Physically, Judah was in bad shape as well. Assyria was a new regional power. In 722 BC, they sacked Samaria, Israel's capital to the north, and they took the northern tribes into captivity. Uncertainty and fear of Assyria reigned in Judah and when Assyria decided, the question would be in the people, when would Assyria decide to come and topple us in Jerusalem next? It was against this bleak and desperate backdrop that God was looking for a messenger, a messenger to proclaim judgment on Judah until the people are removed and the land is a desolate waste, says the Lord. God hated all that Judah had become and wanted a preacher who would boldly declare God's judgment in the face 
of their rebellion and their hard-heartedness. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, God gets his messenger. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Isaiah's ministry was one of fruitless warning and exhortation to a people who would not hear God, fear God, and reason with God. And we see this in the context of chapter 1. Look at verses 2 and 3. For the Lord speaks, sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel doesn't know. My people do not understand. And then look at verse 4 where Isaiah gets caught up into name calling. He says of Judah, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, he calls them. This nation has so turned from God that Isaiah can't help but note the vast destruction that they have endured as a result of their rebellion. In verses 5 through 8, he says, From head to foot you are sick and ravaged. Your land is trashed and overrun by strangers. In verses 9, then we see God's grace. Except that God let a few survivors of us, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, he says in verse 9. Except for the grace of God to leave a remnant, Judah would have been totally wiped out and destroyed. In verses 1 through 9, we see the issue as a rebel nation. And we see the extent of God's punishment and destruction. And you can just feel already in Isaiah chapter 1, it is just wickedness upon wickedness. Your your eyes see destruction here and destruction there and rebellion all over the place. it's It's the nastiest, most violent, most upheaved storm on the sea that you could possibly imagine. The imagery in the mind that comes to being lost at sea and caught in a a violent storm. It could be that maybe in this text you see a nation being stranded in a desert and having no water and only under the intense heat of God's wrath. And that's where Israel is at. That's where Judah is at. Judah is a wicked nation. Lost in a sea of her own idolatry and adultery against the God of her salvation. Before we get into the text, you know, it's real easy right here, to pull across a direct national parallel to America. The rampant wickedness of our day, I think everybody could see that. But it gets more personal if I ask you, how many of you have run your lives into this place of rebellion personally? Are you weighed down by your own sin, sick from head to toe, living a desperate, desolate spiritual life? How do you get out? How do you get out? Is there an escape? How can you fix all that is broken in your life? Are you lost in your own sea of iniquity? What do you need? What you need is this morning for us to get to the island of divine reason. There is a place of divine reason. And fortunately, that is where Isaiah is going. Isaiah is going to the island of divine reason in this text. In my mind, this works like an ocean helicopter rescue mission. So just go there in your mind with me, an ocean helicopter rescue mission. Israel is drowning in her iniquity. She will perish. And Isaiah is piloting the word of God rescue helicopter to the scene, as it were. And he will take any survivor from the sea of iniquity to the island of divine reason with him that he can get on that plane. The flight path of the island has three checkpoints, and we need to go through each of these. To get to the island of divine reason, Judah's survivors must receive and embrace these three things. The command to hear, the cause for fear, 
and the call to reason. These are the three checkpoints on the way to the island of divine reason. The command to hear, the cause for fear, and the call to reason. This is a rescue for all of us this morning that we need to receive and embrace, especially in the times in which we live. We all need to escape from the catastrophes of the world and the chaos of our own mind and our own lives and find a refuge. We need to find a land, even an island, where there is something in the way of divine reason. So let's consider first flight path checkpoint number one, the command to hear. Let's look at the command to hear. You see this in the text. It comes up in verse 10. Read again with me, 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Well, the command to hear is very plain in the text. It's right there. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah says. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the problem with mankind from creation. We were made by God to worship God and to obey God, to take instruction from Him. We are dependent on Him. We're dependent on Him. Is that the way we operate? Is that how we act? Do we offer Him worship and praise? No, Jeremiah 17.9 rules in our hearts. Genesis 6.5, the heart of man is deceitful above all things we know and desperately sick. Who can, who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9. We make every effort to worship ourselves. And this is why life hurts. Our rebellion to God is our ultimate source of pain. Adam and Eve's problems came from rebellion to God. Judah's problems came from rebellion to God. All of our problems today come from the same thing, rebellion to the word of God. So question for you. You're holding the Bible in your hands. Do you really believe that it's the Word of God? Do you treasure it? Is that book that you're holding a lamp to your feet and a light to your path? Do you join the psalmist who says in Psalm 119.11, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Do you believe this and, and live this? Or do you pay lip service to this? Or worse yet, are you actively a rebel to the words of the book that you hold? Israel rebelled against the word of the Lord, and Isaiah taunts them, calling Judah names, Sodom and Gomorrah. He taunts them. Isaiah demands that wicked Israel listen to the word of God. This is checkpoint number one to get to the island of divine reason. You must Hear from God. The command is the command to hear from God. And what is God saying to Israel? What is God's message to Israel from verses 11 to 14? He says to them, I'm angry with you. I'm angry. I've had enough. All of your efforts are total vanity to me. Your offerings are worthless. I hate what you're doing. 
and I'm not pleased by you in the slightest. You know, I, I would believe and say that God has this same message against most of what the world calls Christianity. The same message. Well, what would make you say that, Oliver? Because there's a whole bunch of people out there that believe that spiritual gifts, the healings and tongues are available for people today. Who's being healed from coronavirus? Are those churches open today? What about women pastors? What about homosexual pastors? What about gender confusion? All these things that society and the voices of fear are selling to us as well. Should we bow down and buckle to them? You know, God has kids. God is a parent now with totally disrespectful kids. Now and then. Judah. God's disrespectful nation. His children. They've abused his favor, his grace, his mercy and love. And God will no longer endure their obligatory offerings and the trampling of his courts. He is screaming at them, end your rebellion. End your rebellion to me. Honor me. Did you do this to your parents? Maybe some of you are parents here today. Is this being done to you? How much rebellion can you pack into a six-year-old? Quite a bit, right? What about an 18-year-old? How much rebellion is there? How much rebellion can a parent take? And so I ask you, do you judge the behavior of your children? Do you have standards that must be upheld? Do you punish children knowing that punishment is necessary, right, and good? God did. We might need to wrestle with this for a minute. Because many people have created a God of their own understanding. And they have designed a God who is only love and grace and mercy continually. And in so doing, they have engaged in idol worship because they divorce love, grace, and mercy from righteousness, justice, and wrath. Is this you this morning? Who among us thinks that God shouldn't have hatred, anger, and wrath for unrighteousness? Who among us would seek to divide God's holiness from his righteousness and presume that love is void of justice? Is that a love that you give, one that's void of justice? Some will say, well, the God of the Old Testament is wrathful, but Jesus is loving. Really? Have you read Revelation 19.15? From Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. You cannot divide the character of God. Nor can you apply certain characteristics of God to one of the three persons of God. All three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, share the same essential essence, the same nature. And the essence of God is the fullest expression of, all at the same time, as big as you could possibly imagine, grace and justice, love and hate, mercy and wrath. God hates unrighteousness. And he said as much to Israel through Isaiah. This is the first flight path checkpoint. The command to hear God and to hear his hatred of all unrighteousness, particularly your unrighteousness. And that message hits hard. It hits hard. It must hit us hard. Like the rotor wash of a helicopter hanging 50 feet over our head, it has to hit us hard. A Coast Guard rescue swimmer named Joe relates this story. He says, heavy seas had capsized a sailboat, leaving two men struggling to survive. 
Joe jumped in to get them and in the, in the, up into the rescue basket, but he was going to put them in one at a time. And when it came to help them get into the basket, the second man became alarmed at the helicopter's rotor wash. And Joe recalls that the guy was freaked out a bit. He says, I had to do a break on him, you know, use some pressure points, sort of like a wrestling move to get him to calm down. Now, if you don't understand the character of God, and you don't understand how justice and wrath go together with mercy and grace, no one's going to grab you and stick a wrestling move on you and put a pressure point to you this morning. The Word of God will do that. But there's a direct parallel here. Wicked sinners often act like panicked victims in the face of intense rescue. Let's say that again. Wicked sinners often act like panicked victims in the face of an intense rescue. Why? Because the righteousness of God is both abrasive and attractive. It both condemns and is the only source of rescue. It bears both His mercy and His wrath. You want the helicopter rescue? Expect the rotor wash. It's going to slap you in the face and try to knock you down into the water. How must we respond? By joining the best of what we can. By joining together great calm with appropriate fear. Do those two things usually go together? Well, they need to. Calm and fear. Great calm and appropriate fear. Where are we going to get appropriate fear? Flight path checkpoint number two. I'm going to move on to number two in your notes. Flight path checkpoint number two, the cause of fear. You need to know what to fear. You need to know the source of fear. And Isaiah is going to put some fear into us in the next three verses. Where do we see the cause for fear? From verses 15 to 17. Read that again with me. Through Isaiah, God says, So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. There's much to fear in these three verses. In fact, we have three causes for fear. Three causes for fear. The first cause for fear comes in God's actions. God's actions are a cause for your fear. Let's explain how. What does the text say that God will do? What is God going to do? First, it says he will hide his eyes. He will hide his eyes. Second, it says he will not listen. These are God's actions. You know, I read this back over again. And I was thinking about this text. You really have to think, how sad is this? How sad is this? That this is a point that humanity comes to with God. When he turns his ears and eyes away from us. How could it come to this? As a parent, could you imagine saying this to your son or daughter? You know, before your mind says no on that, I want you to think through this. There are people in this congregation who have had to say yes. Who have had to hide their eyes and their ears from their children because of the wickedness that continues to spew out of them. God's no different. God was made to say these things to rebellious Judah. Do you punish rebellion in your own home? Well, of course you do. You must, or otherwise you live in chaos. 
And punishing rebellion is right and good and just. And so it is with God. He responds with anger and judgment toward all unrighteousness. And right he should. Because he is only perfect continually. I'm not going to a heaven where there's a God that likes unrighteousness. I'm going to a heaven where he is perfect continually and righteousness reigns. That's what his son paid for. That's what he bought in his blood. He did this in the Garden of Eden. He did this in a global flood. He did this when he allowed Samaria to be destroyed by the Assyrians. And he will judge Judah's wickedness as well. God has several ways that he can judge and punish. By the work of his own hand. By working through human beings as his instruments in his hand. Or as we see in Romans 1 verses 22 to 25. And this is probably the worst. Boy, I, I, I would much rather be under God's hand than to have this happen to me. It is the case that in God's punishment, Romans 1 says that God gives up the fools and the unrighteous to the lust of their own hearts. To the lust of their... I would rather be under God's heavy hand of discipline than turned over to the lust of my own heart. This is what God is doing to Judah. He will hide his eyes. And like a sleepless spouse after years of snoring... He will plug his ears. He will turn his back and say, have at it. You love sin. Go get it. Go get all the more of it. And when you think about God turning his back on you, you should fear. You should fear. Could you imagine someone fighting the rescue swimmer that's hanging on a cable outside of a helicopter to the point that the helicopter's pilot has to fly away to save the rescue swimmer. God acts to protect his honor and glory and righteousness. And that should be a cause of fear to us. And then third cause of fear. The second cause of fear is, is Judah's nature. The first cause of fear is God's actions. And the second cause of fear is God's or Judah's nature, as it were. Judah's nature. Your nature is who you are. What's at the core of your being? God declares to Judah, your hands are covered with blood. Effectively, he is saying, you are murderers. You see this in verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 1. How, faithful, how the faithful city has become a, car, a harlot, it says. She who was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Takers of life. Those who willfully destroy the image of God. Years prior, under King Ahaz, they had joined forces, Judah did, with the Assyrians. They joined forces, Judah did, with the Assyrians, leading under King Ahaz to the murder and captivity of their brothers, Israel, the tribe in the north, when Samaria fell. These are murderers. This is God's evaluation of their nature. You are murderers. You're covered in blood. This is a cause for fear that the God of the universe knows you down to the very core of your being, the very fiber of your being. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And as if this wasn't enough reason for fear, how about a third cause for fear? God's demands. God's demands. You see this in verses 16 to 17. God demands perfection and a complete cleansing. He says to them, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. This is Clean the stain of blood off your hands and get the blood out of your clothing as well. And we would ask, 
Can wretched and evil sinners cleanse themselves? Is it right and good for God to demand this of Judah? Yes, God demands this of every one of us. Cleanse yourselves. Feel the weight of that. Immediately, it should spark fear in your heart. How do you cleanse sin? How do you go to God and begin to pay for the first sin on your list or the last one that you just did? What payment will he take? How do you cure sin? It should cause great fear because these guys should have known, just like Jeremiah 2.22 says, listen, although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is always before me, declares the Lord. You know, you're washing your hands to get rid of this coronavirus, and you will. But you cannot wash your hands with lye and use much soap and get rid of the stain of your iniquity. God says it's forever before me. But that's not the only thing that Judah must do. Look at the list of verse 16 and 17. There are nine commands for Judah to look at here. This should cause fear and panic to sweep over them with great intensity. How can these people remove the evil of their deeds from God's sight? How? How does someone learn to do good? These are God's demands. And and they should cause great fear on all of us. Not just for Judah, all of us. And what should be the cause of fear? These three things, these three causes create great fear. God's actions, our nature, and God's demands. So think back over the course of this past week. What did you fear? What did you fear? Did you fear your own nature? The sinfulness inside of you? Did you rightly fear God and his actions and his character? Or did you have fear of running out of toilet paper? Did you have fear of the stock market crashing and your investments being wiped out and your retirement options going away? Did you have fear of the empty shelves at Walmart? Do you have fear even now of a global pandemic? Isn't it amazing? When, ma- when man chooses to broadcast a message for men to fear, men do what? They fear. But when God has, is Isaiah, broadcast this message of fear to Judah, do they fear? No. Very few. What about America today? How many want to hear this message? How many understand the implications? This should cause great fear. Very few. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who find God's wisdom find peace in the midst of any storm, any amount of chaos, any size of any catastrophe. Joe the rescue swimmer says of his job, he says, You have to be an element of calm in a world of chaos. Amen, Joe. You have to be an element of calm in a world of chaos to do his job. Amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, we need to be an element of calm in a swirling sea of chaos. Offering calm in a world of chaos for our friends and our neighbors. Our calm comes from hearing God, from fearing God alone. And as we see next in the text, in the third flight path checkpoint, from reasoning with God, from reasoning with God. This final checkpoint takes us to the island of reason. The call to reason is what we're looking at. The call to reason, this final checkpoint. Let's read again verses 18 through 20. And with all the 
the judgment and all the heaviness in the room and all of the sin and God's wrath, I want you to think through as we read this passage. I really want you to breathe this in. Because there is so much fresh air here. There's so much joy here. This really becomes an island in Isaiah 1 of divine reason. Read the text with me and you'll see. Verses 18 through 20. Through Isaiah, God says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat of the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, there, in, in my heart, I see and perceive and feel such a sweetness to this text. It expresses calm and peace, truth, joy, restoration, and promises. Consider where this text is found. Isaiah is a prophet of judgment. This is a judgment context. Judgment is all over the place. We are looking at evildoers whose cities are devoured. And God hates their offerings because these people in their hearts are murderers. And then, as if the sea calmed. You see Jesus calming the sea. As if the heaviest and darkest clouds parted. And the light of the sun came down. God sweetly is found here inviting Judah to enter in to a conversation. To find refuge. To find a home on the island of reason. Come now. Let us reason together. This is grace. The total grace of God. These are terms of endearment. Soft, warm, enticing. It's as if the helicopter rescue is complete. You've been brought successfully to the island of divine reason. You found your way to Maui. The basket's dropped. You can roll out. You can stand on your own two feet. God will lift you up. You've been plucked from the storm and the chaos of your life and brought to a place of grace and truth, love and peace. Consider what's happening here. It is amazing beyond words what's happening in this text. God, who dwells only in perfection, is going to reason with the murderers of Judah. The righteous one is reasoning with rebels. The sinless one is speaking with wicked sinners. The offering to reason with Judah from God is astronomically gracious. What reasoning is going to be done here? Well, this is divine reasoning from God. And God offers two topics of divine reasoning. Two topics. The first topic that God wants to address with them is the divine exchange. The divine exchange is the first topic to reason through. Reason through this with me. Let's talk about this. He says in verse 18, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. This is divine reasoning from the mind of God. And it is the most profound message mankind could ever know. We have been in pandemic state for 6,000 years. And the antidote is 
the son of God, Jesus Christ, who will be explained through the course of Isaiah and all of redemptive history. But it starts here. What an incredible thought for God to give Isaiah to present to this wicked nation, Judah. But here it is, this glorious thought. We sang this this morning. Sin-stained hands can be cleansed. Sin-stained hand can be cleansed. What does this mean? God has found a way. God knows a cure. God has the right antivirus for sin. God is declaring to Judah and all wicked sinners, your sins have stained you like scarlet. I see it. I know it well. And yet, they will be made as white as snow. This is the very thing God demanded Judah to do of themselves in verse 16. He says, wash yourselves and cleanse yourselves. But they know they can't. So we should be demanding, how does this happen? It creates a tension in the text right here on the island of reason, on the island of divine reason, there's a a seed of tension that's sown. And our hearts should be asking, God, what is your antivirus? How can you say this? How will it happen? There's so much tension here. How are crimson red sins made to be like wool? And the answer should break your heart. Let's do a little tour through Isaiah. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, and as you do, I'm going to walk through a couple passages. So just get open to 53, and I'm going to, I'm going to read through a couple of them. Because on the island of divine reason, Isaiah is planting a seed that will be developed throughout the, his prophecy. The seed of hope Isaiah is planting is this thought of divine exchange. How do you exchange scarlet sins for something as white as snow? How do you do that? You need a suffering servant. You need a suffering servant. And in Isaiah 7, 14, we are introduced to God's servant. You know the text very familiar. 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And from Isaiah 7, 14, we move to Isaiah 9, 6, where we understand this virgin-born child will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This Prince of Peace is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the suffering servant of God, and through Him, God accomplishes the great exchange. Our scarlet sins placed on Him, His brilliant snow-white righteousness placed on us, the sinners. Read with me the sound of the price of such a divine exchange. Read with me. The sound of the price of such a divine exchange. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. Paul says, 
of this incredible exchange. A summary. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is double imputation. My sin of all of my life, past, present, future, lifted off of me and imputed onto the Son of God. He bears the wrath of God. He atones for my sin. He propitiates the wrath of God coming down on him so that I never will. And then, the Son of God, his garment, his cloak of righteousness, he takes and he gives it to me. The wicked, wretched sinner that I am. Miracle of miracles. His robes for mine. Oh, wonderful exchange. How many helpless, homeless people have you brought into your home, fed, washed, and clothed? Yet this is exactly what God's plan was. This is divine reason. God reasons that this exchange can, should, and must happen from all of eternity past in his infinite mind to have a people of his own possession. And here in Isaiah, God reveals through the prophet the unfathomable grace of God seen in the suffering servant, bearing the sins of many so that he might give them eternal life. And it should be no surprise that if God can so powerfully exchange scarlet sins for white snow, that he also would set expectations on the behavior of those whom he clothes in wool. We'll see this last. As we look at God's second topic of divine reasoning, the divine expectation, the divine expectation. Verses 19 and 20, the divine expectation. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We have here in this text two promises, two actions, two outcomes. This is a pattern for God. We know it well. He set it up with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He set it up with Moses and David and Solomon. And every person that ever lives on the face of this earth is going to have these same two options presented to them. You either trust God or you don't. And if you trust him and obey him, you will live. But if you refuse him and rebel against him, you will die. That's it. Two options. This is God's divine expectation. Obedience gives blessing, rebellion gives cursing. Pursue righteousness and live. Unrighteousness practices will lead to death. But how? How is it possible, given the failures of mankind, that we would walk with and obey God? We can't. You're exactly right. That's the whole point. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. God must do the work in us. He must give us a power source that is completely different than what we've been living with our whole lives. You have lived with a heart of stone. He must remove the heart of stone from you and put in you a heart of flesh and then put his spirit, the third person of God, in you. That's what he must do. Verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2 say that we're born dead in our transgressions and sins, that you love the course of this world and you allow Satan to tempt you and your own heart is a mess. That's what 2, 1 through 3 says. 2, 4 says, but God, 
It says, but God in his rich mercy and great love made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Read with me verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Does God have expectations of your behavior? What did the text just say? He put good works before you so that you'd walk in them. That's too much of a burden, Lord. I don't, I don't know if I can walk that. I, I chose to follow you. I chose to have Jesus in my life. I chose to accept your salvation. But did you get salvation? Did he give it to you? It's not about your choice. It's about his giving. Because when he gives, he gives in power. And if he gives you salvation, he gives you his spirit and that straight, narrow road that he cut for you, guess what you're going to do? You're going to walk it. That's the power of God living in us. What an incredible story. I love your story, God. That's better than the man-made story. I love your story. Not only did God give salvation through Jesus Christ, making the dead come to life, but God prepared good works for us to do through the power of his Holy Spirit who lives in us. God has made good works for all generations to do because of his namesake. Because of his namesake, we do good works. Through every generation, somebody's been doing the will of God because God always regenerates people through the power of his spirit. Will Judah obey? Will Judah eat the best of the land? Some of them will. In verse 9 of chapter 1 of Isaiah, God left survivors And God has always left a remnant of his people who love and obey him. But we also know there were thousands in Judah who never obeyed. They pretended obedience to God. They went through religious motions. And we know their fate. They were destroyed by the sword. The same religious motions that were happening then are happening now. They happen today. The American church provides a clear picture of the many whom Jesus will say in Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you pretend obedience to God? Do you have a ritualism or spirituality which God hates, like he hates Judas? Where are you with God this morning? You know, one columnist from India in the midst of this whole coronavirus deal penned an article entitled, Coronavirus, Is God Unhappy with Mankind? The answer is yes, because of sin and rebellion to God. Are you in rebellion to God? Do you know that you are? Do you hate your sin? Do you fear God alone? Is it his voice that you're listening to this morning? I hope you would take time to think about the island of divine reason. I hope that spending time on it this morning has served you well. I hope that you clearly saw sin is the pandemic, Jesus Christ is the answer, and that God is even now offering salvation from sin, even to murderers, and is able to make all of us obedient worshipers of him. He is able. This is divine reasoning. What a glorious island on which to find refuge. That's what you needed this morning. You didn't know it, but you came in to find an island of refuge. Did we get there? Did you experience refuge? It's in Christ and in a great exchange. Don't miss Isaiah's warning to Judah. It's a warning for us. Hear God. Fear God. And get into God's line of reasoning. 
His reasoning is so powerful. What should consume our thoughts and mind? The divine exchange and the expectations that God places on us. Is our desire to know salvation on his terms or do we want to know it on our terms? Is our desire continually obedience or is it obedience to what we want to do in this life? You know, I find the case, this is the case. When people tell me that they chose Jesus, you know what they tell me next? The level of obedience that they want to choose to him. That's not the way this works. Did you hear what I said? People tell me that they chose Jesus. And what I know next, what happens next is that they tell me how much obedience that they give to Jesus. You're a slave of Jesus. Jesus is a giver of salvation. And when he gives salvation, he gives it in power. And he makes you perfectly equipped and able to be an obedient slave. And there's nothing in this life better for you to be than to be a slave of Jesus Christ. What voices do you hear and what voices do you fear? Daily dysphoria and cultural hysteria come in many forms, and they aim to hold us captive in fear and make us obedient to their voices. All while God deserves our solidarity, allegiance, and obedience, it is God who gives us the comfort of an island of divine reason to which we retreat at any time to ponder our sin and to ponder the marvelous salvation that happened through the great exchange in Jesus Christ's blood. My prayer for you is this. That God's divine reason captures your heart, mind, and soul. And that you respond with love and obedience to Christ all of your days. In this, you will find calm and you will find peace. And you will be a blessing to many in times of catastrophe. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, what an interesting time in which you've placed us to live. It's no different than any other brothers and sisters in Christ who have lived before us. There are those who have voices and they project fear. And they want us to reason with them. And your voice is so clear, Father. We need you. Would you turn our hearts to you? Would you cause us to see our sin? Would you cause us to hear you, fear you, and always obey you, taking refuge on your island of divine reason? We pray this for ourselves, for our congregation, for our nation, and for this world. Save many, Father, through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.